Hello, you're listening to Second City Sermons, a ministry of Second City Church in Midtown Harrisburg. This fall, we're exploring the Old Testament book of Nehemiah and seeing what often happens when God's people seek to rebuild what is broken. It's a book of trial, triumphs, repair, repentance, and renewal. It's our hope that these sermons will draw you more into the life of following God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We'd love to meet you, and we hope you'll consider coming and joining with us each Sunday morning at 10 a.m. in the heart of Midtown Harrisburg. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. We hope you enjoyed this sermon. God bless. Let's pray together. Lord, now may the meditations of our hearts, uh, the thoughts, the desires, the things that we focus on and contemplate, Lord, may they be pleasing in your sight. Lord, may the words of my mouth now be pleasing in your sight. And may you use this time, Lord, as you will, that you might shape us into your life in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, last week I mentioned that Daniel Rowland, who was a great uh, preacher during the Welsh revival of the middle of the 18th century in in Wales, he said this, that if you want to accomplish great things, read Nehemiah. If you want to accomplish great things, read, read Nehemiah. But there is a real problem. Part of the reason why there are so few Nehemiahs in the world is that to do something, anything, let alone great things, requires risk. And we're often just full of fear. Um, if I asked you what you're afraid of, my guess is that you would say things, depending upon your age, maybe, like uh, spiders, bee bites, bites from bees, bugs, mice. I don't like those. Maybe you're afraid of the dark. Um, maybe you're claustrophobic, right? A fear, you're fearful of tight spaces, small spaces. Or maybe you're agoraphobic. You know what that Fear of the wide open spaces. Um, maybe, you, maybe you feel the fear of the threat of Russian or North Korean nuclear engagement. Or maybe you're just fearful um, of the lack of health care or the lack of funds to retire. You know, the fact is that we could just keep on going, listing all kinds of things that we're fearful of. The world gives us all kinds of reasons to fear. We fear strangers. Um, we fear loneliness. Um, a lot of us fear certain relationships. Relationships with bosses or with bullies. Or just the fact that actually a lot of relationships are broken. Or they end up being broken. And so we don't even really want to enter into them. Um, a lot of us fear being known uh, by others, by ourselves. You know, like really... Really seeing ourselves even? That's kind of scary. Maybe you fear being known by God. Even though we confess he knows all things. Let's just hide this part from him. What will we do if he knows? Um, a lot of people have a fear of public speaking. And you know what else a lot of people have a fear of? Death. This is the big two, right? And actually a lot of people say public speaking is over death. Which is just kind of <laughs> wild to me. Um. Today is 
you know, a, a day that, that our, our country remembers and often remembers with sorrow. Um, it's a day that in, invokes pride within us. But, but if, you, and if you were alive during that time, uh, you likely remember the exact place where you were. I can picture exactly where I was in my parents' minivan uh, getting off the ferry in Tacoma at Point Defiance Park and getting in the minivan to go to the, my summer job and turning on the radio and finding that everybody was talking about the same thing and I just didn't believe what was happening. And I guarantee you can probably remember the same thing, that sort of a fear and just a shock that overtook you about what took place. Of course, there were all kinds of questions that were running through my mind. What is happening? How bad is it going to be? How many planes are there? How many people are going to die? All these kinds of questions that are racing through my mind. Um, 46 minutes, you might know, after Flight 93 took off from Newark on its way over to California, hijackers overtook the cockpit there. And one of them had been trained as a pilot, Ziad Jara. He turned the plane around. He was just over northeast Ohio. And you might know that he was headed for our nation's capital. What happened was that all of the passengers were pushed to the back of the plane. They were forced to the back of the plane. And as they did so, they, tried, they made calls to their loved ones, to their mothers, to their brothers, to their fathers, to their lovers. And they said, what's going on? And they're hearing things about the falling down of the Twin Towers. And you might know the story. In the back, they, they actually voted, what are we going to do? And they knew the risk, they knew the very, the very real risk and the fear that was taking over them, that they were going to die if they went forward to do something, but if they didn't go forward, they would also die. And so what did that group of people do? But they actually rushed forward. And we actually don't know exactly what happened, but we know that that plane came down here in Pennsylvania, and every single person on that plane died. In fact, most people couldn't even be identified because the crash was so severe. But it actually saved likely thousands upon thousands of lives. Here's the thing. They knew the risk. And it's not that they didn't have a level of fear. I guarantee they had a level of fear of the situation that they were finding themselves in. And yet they said, this is absolutely worth it. This is worth it. So chapter 2 of Nehemiah, it, it presents us with, with all these reasons why Nehemiah... Well, maybe why he shouldn't have gone back to work on rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. All these reasons why Nehemiah could say, God, I know you've called me to do this, but let me give you all of the reasons why that's actually not what I should be doing with my life right now. Um, we saw last week Nehemiah's broken heart for the broken situation of his people. And we saw how he sat in the sadness and just wept and how he offered prayers to the Lord. And it said it at least for days, but actually as we pick up in the beginning of chapter 2 here, it said it was in the month of Nisan. And so we know it's actually about a four-month time of Nehemiah sitting in the sorrow of the situation and, and asking and wondering, God, what are you doing and what are you calling me to do? This sort of time between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Um, and we, we considered there how God often calls us to enter into the places and do the things where our hearts are breaking. To go to those places. But the, the reality is, is that we can always give all kinds of reasons why we shouldn't do that. I guarantee you there are all kinds of reasons why you shouldn't do that. Um, 
oftentimes where God's calling you to go, it demands a level of vulnerability. It demands a lot of risk. Um, oftentimes it might actually invite a level of opposition. It could take your life. Right? That's a real thing of following God. It actually could take your life. It might mean uprooting from the stability that you find yourself in with secure job, friendships, family nearby, and going somewhere where you're unknown and you don't know what you're doing. So here's what I want you to see, okay, in chapter 2 of Nehemiah. I want you to just sit in all these kind of risks that Nehemiah lists for us. He doesn't list them out. I'll show you. But I want you to see also how God met him in each of these places. How he provided in each of these situations. And how God, even despite all of the fears that are going on here, all the risks that are going on here, he clearly made a path for Nehemiah. Okay, so risks. Do you remember that chapter 1 ended with just this one phrase, and I was a cupbearer before the king? That, ne that Nehemiah says, hey, I've got this situation where I can act. Uh, it's important that you know what a cupbearer is. And Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, but he wasn't just the cupbearer to any kind of like provincial king. He was the cupbearer to Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes was the most powerful person in the world at the time. He was... He was the emperor of the empire of Persia at the time. And so to be a cupbearer to this king, um, it, was a, it was a position of great, great honor. In fact, we now, we now have sort of documents from then that refer to cupbearers and, and their relation to their kings. And actually there's reliefs from the Persian empire that you can see now that include the cupbearer because the cupbearer's position was so important. He had such a key role in the life of the empire and before the king. Um, so the cupbearer, the cupbearer was often a eunuch. It was actually in charge of the harem, the king's harem. But also the cupbearer, he also wore the king's signet ring, which was to say that he was sort of like the CFO of the empire. He was the chief financial officer. If he was like, yeah, let's build that bridge, it's going to happen. And all his, his title is just cupbearer, but his power was massive. And why is that? Well, because to be the cupbearer meant actually that you tasted the wine before the king got it. Because what are you going to, you know, everybody's like, hey, I want to kill that king. What are the different ways that I can kill the king? Well, I can walk into the, his, you know, his palace with a spear and try to throw it at him. Or maybe I can sneak in a bottle with some poison and get him. And the cupbearer cup plays this important role of taking that wine and tasting it first before it's given to the king. So he's putting his life on the line all the time for the king. So you can imagine the cupbearer is a unique position with massive influence specifically because there is incredible trust. It's incredible trust. All right. So here's what happens. Let me read the first couple of verses again. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I was very much afraid. Okay, now why would he be afraid in a relationship like this? Well, there are some commentators that say what's said when 
the wine was before him, and that probably refers maybe to a party. And the cupbearer can't be dour at the party. Come on, it's a party. It's the king's party. Have a good time. I don't think that's a very good explanation, and a lot of other people don't too, because Nehemiah actually goes on to explain what's going on. And what Nehemiah does when he explains what's happening is he bears his heart before the king, the emperor. Verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Some of you do those kinds of arrow prayers, right? Just shoot them up, Lord, help. Um, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's grave. Did you notice it twice says that? He's laying bare his, his family history and how it's in ruins. That I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? Now, what I'm suggesting to you is that the first risk that we see here in this passage is not just the risk of moving out from the known, uh, moving out from a place of security, moving out from a job that every, would be the envy of all of your neighbors, uh, moving out from this city of Susa. But what I'm actually suggesting to you is that the first risk that we're actually seeing here is really a, a risk of vulnerability. He's going before the most powerful person in the world, and he's saying, my heart is breaking because the land of my forefathers is in complete ruins. The, my father's graves are in ruins. This place that I love, that, is, that belongs to my family, is destroyed. He's bearing his heart. Nehemiah is opening his heart to the most powerful person alive at the, in the world at the time. He's saying, look. My guess is that a lot of you know how risky that is. I mean, just to open up and say, look, do you want a glimpse inside of me? Do you want to see why my tears are flowing? That is a place of massive vulnerability. It's a huge place of risk. I mean, the, the fact is that the king could have just mocked Nehemiah. Nehemiah, you want to go to Jerusalem? You are in Susa, the citadel? The capital? You want to go to some backwater town? Come on, Nehemiah. Get yourself together. I mean, they're just graves. You're the cupbearer to the emperor of the known world. You got it going. Come on, pull yourself together. When we, uh, when we first, the, the summer that we first moved to Harrisburg, so a little over seven years ago, we were exploring different parks around here, and we went, and we, we saw on a map the Conde de Gwinnett, you know, river in my mind. It's a creek. Um, I don't know why something that's that, I can't even throw a football that far, it's called a creek. Um, but we're like, let's go check it out. So we went over to Adams Ritchie Park. Ricky Park? I still don't know. Ricky. Adams Ricky Park. And we, and we thought, okay, you can get down to the Conde de Gwinnett from there. It looks, at, least, at least it looks like it. So we're exploring. And we park our car and we're, and we're looking around. And this guy walks by our car and I say, hey, um, how do I get down to the river? He goes, oh, you're not from here, are you? And I'm like, why? He said, that's not a river, that's a creek. And I was like, I don't what's wrong with you? And he, he said, um, you're not from here, where, where are you from? And I said, well, we moved from Richmond, in the city in Richmond, Virginia, and we moved to Harrisburg. 
And this is what he said. I don't cross that river, referring to the Harvey Taylor, unless I'm loaded down with ammo. And that is, quote, unquote, I remember that phrase perfectly because I thought, holy cow. Um, no, well, 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 what it was really saying is, how foolish of you. You would move into a place that I wouldn't even enter into unless I have guns loaded down? What are you doing? To show your heart, particularly to show your heart for a place that might be mocked, is, is to enter into a situation of vulnerability. It's risky. To say, you know, I want to love some place where people have actually not loved it for a while. It's to enter into a place of risk, of vulnerability, to have your heart exposed. Okay, now, I want to, so I want to just for you to see that there's, there's a level of heart risk that's happening here in this passage. But I also do want you to see that there's also just tons of practical risk involved in what Nehemiah is doing. Okay, check out verse 7. I'm just going to keep making our way through the passage. Verse 7. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me temp timber to make beams for the gates of the forest, uh, or gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. So I mentioned last week that he's in Susa, the citadel, and you will remember the map here: Mediterranean, Persian Gulf, Susa, Jerusalem. It's a long ways. It's not like you know. It's a long, long way. And, and he's going to be passing through different provinces. And they're all under, under the Persian Empire. But, you know, even though he's this powerful person, he might not just be able to cross, you know, from, from one place to another. And so there's just the very practical reality that going literally just to the place where God might have you is a risky situation. It's something that would cause you to go, you know what, maybe I don't want to make such a long journey. I'm putting my life at risk. It's a long ways. I'm going across deserts. I'm going through forests. Like, what am I doing making this long journey to this place where God is calling me to go? Um, but there's other risks, too, and there's just simply risks of provisions. You know, I mean, one of the things that he says is, is, would you write a letter to this guy, Asaph, who cares for the king's forests? Because the fact of the matter is, is that the project that I'm going to go do, everybody would laugh at, not just because it's Jerusalem and not just because it's far away, but because it's just way too much. There's too much to do. There's no way that I'm going to be able to accomplish it all. How in the world will we have the resources to actually get done what I think God is calling me to get done? And anybody would have come, and we'll actually get to this a little bit. They would have looked at what all needed to get done in Jerusalem, and they would have just gone, why? There's, just, there's too much, there's too many, too many resources. There's no way this could be accomplished. So he asked for timber to repair the city, to build a fortress, to build a temple, to build the walls, to build his house. And even, even in the list, you kind of go, man, there's just a lot there. How in the world are you going to have the resources to do that? So anyway, the risk of vulnerability, the, the practical risks. But then actually, and this is something that we're going to see as we kind of go on, there's actually just straight up opposition to what he's doing. Like people that are just saying, I don't want you doing that. So look down at verse 10, and then we're going to actually jump to verse 19, okay? Verse 10. But then Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, and Tobiah the Ammonite servant, 
heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite servant, and Geshem, there's more people now, the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And we'll see these names come up again as we walk through this book. But here, what you just need to, to hear in this situation here is that there is a risk of doing this work that God's call him, calling him to do. Um, this good work that God has called him to do. And it's just simply that there's going to be opposition from other people. So there's the vulnerability of the heart situation. There's actually just the practical situation that they're finding themselves in. And that is just way beyond an ordinary means. And it's scary and it's a long ways away. But here you actually have people that are like, I just don't want you to do that. I don't want, I don't like that. It's not good. And you know what? I'll, let's just say this. There, there are plenty of people that just don't want churches around. And they even hear the statistics like I shared with you a little over a month ago. You know, this great study that was done by University of Pennsylvania that said the average church, which keep in mind now the average church in the United States is only 65 people. The average church has a halo effect to benefit its community of $1.7 million a year, right? Um, that's all kinds of different things. I explained that in another sermon that wasn't on a podcast, so you're not going to listen to it. Actually, it's on YouTube. Listen to it if you want. Whatever. Um, but here's what I'm saying is that there are actually people that say, you know what? Churches are not good. Certainly churches that say Jesus is the, the way, the truth, and the life. Churches that actually think that there's an exclusive claim that Christ alone can save. What are you doing to society? I mean, let's get rid of at least those. Just give us some social services. Stop saying stuff like that. There's people that truly, truly think, you know, we don't want that kind of church. Or, you know, there's actually a lot, and I know that you'll never imagine this, but there's a lot of opposition that can come from within the church. What are we doing? I mean, what, how in the world are we possibly ever going to be able to care well for somebody with mental handicaps? What are we thinking? I mean, are, do you seriously think we might actually be able to do something with this crazy building we have? Why are we playing drums in the worship service? That's never been said in a church, but I'm telling you, I imagined it up in my head. And, you know, you can hear these kinds of things in churches. What I'm telling you is that when you look at this second chapter in the book of Nehemiah, what we had in chapter one was this broken heart for this broken situation and God and this it's being directed Godward. And what you end, what we ended with is this hopeful kind of statement that he's the cupbearer to the king. What we have in chapter two is what seems like just a list of reasons not to do what God's calling you to do. And it's a lot of the same reasons that we could actually make up. Reasons of the heart, reason, very practical reasons, and simply opposition. That that's not what you should be doing. People saying that. But here's what I want you to see. And I think this is just incredibly clear in this passage. Once you actually have eyes to see it. And ears to listen to it. God meets every single one of these risks. Every single one of these fears. Every single opposition. He meets. And he provides. Alright, check this out. So what's the king's response to the vulnerability? Well, for one, he does say, how long are you going to be gone? Which, of course, initially makes you go, the king does not want him to go. Because, of course, he doesn't want him to go. Look at the role he had with the king. But this is actually 
Um, this is actually how the king responds. Verse 6, the end of verse 6, it says this. So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. It wasn't sort of a reluctancy, actually. God seemed to grab a hold of King Artaxerxes' heart, and it pleased him to send his most trusted person in his whole kingdom away from him to repair a broken-down city in far-off Judah in Jerusalem. What about the practical needs that Nehemiah had? The, the need for the letters to the governors for his safe uh, voyage. The need for the timber to accomplish all of this work. This is no small ask. I mean, imagine this. This is not a small thing for Nehemiah to go, Hey, king, you know, this whole city's destroyed. I need a whole new wall. I need a new temple. Uh, I need timber for that. I, actually, I'd like a timber for my own house. <laughs> He's just like... Listing it all out. It's just this long, long request. Something that you're like, how, how are you going to ask that much? Um, I mean, you've got to be a little bit crazy and like a little brazen to go before such a powerful person and say, hey, can you just write me a blank check, please? End of verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. Verse 9, then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen, which is to say maybe, they, maybe those governors did need a little like intimidation, like, hey, this is the real deal. But it's actually to say, you know what? King Artaxerxes went above and beyond what he had even asked for. As brazen and crazy as it was, King Artaxerxes met it and gave it, and it was all because of the Lord. Now, Think of the straight-up opposition that happens. Uh, okay, maybe you were listening attentively as Amy read this. But the first thing that Nehemiah does when he gets back to Jerusalem is he, it just says he was there for three days. We don't know what he was doing. Maybe he was resting. It was a long journey. You know, maybe he was just tired. He was resting. Maybe he was sort of taking it in. But we actually know he wasn't taking it in too much because then it actually goes on to sort of list the situation. He takes with him a couple people, and he takes with him his animal, all right? And he starts to survey the city. And in surveying the city, this, this is, I think this is really beautiful. He starts to name, name the places. Did you catch that? The Valley Gate, the Dragon Spring, the Dun Gate. He starts to name all these places, which actually starts to show his heart for it, right? I mean, you, you start to know, know like Harrisburg more when you start to like, Name, actually, the different bridges and the different neighborhoods. And you start to actually know the different places that you're good to go eat at. And, you know, where you want to hang out, the different parks, all this sort of stuff. It starts to show his heart. Um, and it starts to show also his attentiveness, I think. You can tell the detail with which he's doing his work. Um, but the other thing that this does is it shows just how bad the situation is. Did you notice the detail that said that when he went through, um, what gate was it? Oh, oh yeah, the king's, uh, the king's pool. It said that his animal couldn't get through it. Like, it's, it's such a bad, it's just such a bad situation that even the animal that is kind of taking him around, it, 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 there's a point where he's like, I can't even keep going. The situation is so dire. Um. And then there's this detail, too, where it, it seems as though he, it's, it's such a bad situation 
that he wants to survey it before he actually brings it to the people living there, right? So it's after the fact that he says stuff like this, the people that aren't there. He says the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest of those who would do the work. They're not with him while he's surveying it. My guess with that is that it would just overwhelm them. Right? I mean, just taking it all in and looking at how much it had to be done, they would have just gone, there's no way this could, this could happen. I, I don't think I can be a part of it. And then, of course, there's the voices of the voices of Sanballat and Tobiah, who says, what is this thing that you're doing? That's literally what they say. What are you doing? And it's out of that situation, okay, that this is what we read in verse 17 and 18. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Speaking to the, the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, the people who do the work. Um, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the walls of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good. And also the words of the, that the king had spoken to me. And they said... Of all things, which seems as though he was sort of going, I can't even show them how bad this is yet. This is how they respond. Let us rise up and build. Let us rise up and build. So they strengthen their hands for the good work. Here's where I'm going with all this. Anything worth doing in life is going to entail all kinds of risks. All kinds of things that you could list out in your fears. All kinds of ways where you're like, that is going to cause hurt. That's just impossible because it's too much. That might cause derision and open opposition. But what this letter seems to, or this book and in this chapter seems to tell us very clearly is that in all the places where we might say, see God, I shouldn't do that. See God, I definitely shouldn't do that. And Lord, I can't do that. Says, look at how I've shown up here. Look at how I will show up then. Look, I'm going to be there with you again and again and again and again. I mean, here's the reality. Okay, can, can snakes kill? Yes, they can. Do people mock? Yes, they do. Are hearts sometimes rejected painfully? Yes, they are. Um, is the proposal for the grant that we are writing with logos an astronomical number? It is. Um, will we have favor with those in power? I have no idea. Very possibly not. But if God is in it, can those fears dictate what we do? No, they cannot. Our fears cannot dictate what we do. So then, at the end of this, this is how Nehemiah ends it. Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper. And we'll see, it doesn't necessarily happen easily, right? <laughs> it's not like it's just smooth sailing. Yeah. But he says, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and we will build. Here's the, here's the fact of the matter. If you are looking for absolute safety in this life, you're not going to find it anywhere. Now, this is what I read this week. You can stay home in bed, but that may make you one of the half million Americans who require emergency room treatment each year for injuries sustained 
while falling out of bed. Um, you can cover your windows and hide. But do you know that 10 people accidentally hang themselves on Venetian cord blinds every year in the United States? It's a crazy statistic. You can hide money under your mattress. Do you know that it could make you one of the tens of thousands of people who will go to the emergency room because of wounds caused by handling money? It's amazing. I don't know how that works. That's what I read, a stat this week. That's crazy. Here's my point. If you are looking for safety, you're not going to find it. If you want to list all the reasons, if God is calling you to do something, why you shouldn't do it, you can make your long list, but you're not going to be safe still. There's no place safer than where God is calling you to go and to be. There's no place safer than that. And he will provide for you if he calls you to do it. Everything has risks. Here's what we know. Our Lord cared for Nehemiah. As he called Nehemiah, he cared for him. Think of the Psalms that we looked at just last month. Where David was betrayed. He was handed over to be killed. He, his life was sought after. What did the Lord do? He cared for him in those situations in astonishing ways. Or, of course, think of our Lord Jesus himself. Jesus was mocked. Jesus was betrayed. Uh, he was given over to the most fearful situation possible. I mean, literally, the cross was the instrument of fear, to instill fear uh, in, in, the, in the people that Rome wanted to instill fear into. It was absolutely agonizing. A lot of times, crosses would actually be, we'd be put up on, on roadways in and out of rebellious cities to say, look at what happens to the people that go against us, the people in power. And what happens with Jesus? But he takes on Satan, sin, and death, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and he rises again. He was given for the life of the world. And because he was given by the Father, the Father would care for him. Even when Jesus himself, right, in that garden says, Lord, take this from me. Take this cup from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus himself knows all the reasons why he might list, God, I don't want to do this. Father, take it from me. And yet, entering the place of fear and the unknown and, and the place of death, is, it becomes the very place of life. Jesus was given because the Father so loved the world. But it wouldn't come to nothing. It becomes the place of life. This is a lesson that we have from Nehemiah 2. All of the reasons you're going to list. Uh, Lord, you're not calling me to do that. All of those places, bring them before the Lord and he will meet you. He has done it to Nehemiah, to David, to countless thousands upon thousands of other followers. He did it in our Lord Jesus himself, in the cross and the resurrection. And he will do it to you and he will do it for us. Let me pray. Lord, meet us in the place of our fears. Meet us in the place of our excuses, Lord. Uh, meet us in the place of a legitimate opposition, uh, legitimate reasons why people don't do things. And God, show yourself to be real, please. Meet us. Show up. Provide ways where we think there is no way. Lord, you've done this over and over again. 
Hear our prayers and do it in and through us, we ask. Amen. Thank you for listening to Second City Sermons podcast. We hope this sermon has encouraged you to worship God and to celebrate the gospel of Jesus. Please consider subscribing to this podcast and joining us in person each Sunday at 10 a.m. You can find us online at secondcitychurch.org and on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Thanks again for listening. God bless.